Kevin made an excellent point that our lives, we construct them into stories, into narratives. And sometimes they resonate with us when we hear other people's stories. Whether that is through fiction, through our news, through song. And that is powerful because we are shaped by stories. It's not just the literal facts that happen in our life, but how we experience them, the emotions in them, oh, and even the reflection that we give it later in life, the meaning that we give them. And today, I want to um, tell you a story, tell you a story of something that happened about 3,000 years ago when the kingdom of Israel was in its infancy. And it takes place in an area called the Shephelah. And I've been there, and it's beautiful country in Israel. And um, the story that we're going to tell comes from 1 Samuel 17, verses 1 through 54. And I hope that you will have some grace with me today as I tell it to us, rather than read straight from Scripture. But today, we're going to sit in this and where this location is. So the Shephelah is located, you can see this map up here, um, the water to um, the left. Yes, I use my hands and I look for the L. Judge me all you want. I'm 47 and I still do that. So to the left is the Mediterranean Sea. In the middle is Israel, and you can kind of see another body of water. That is the Dead Sea, just trying to orient you a little bit. This is not a geography lesson. I'm not going to quiz you on it later. But that red patch in the middle is the Shephelah. And it is an area in ancient Palestine. And in, in this region at that time, it had along its eastern border a mountain range and all of the ancient cities of that region, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Hebron, were there. And then there was the coastal plain itself, that which rested along the Mediterranean. That is where Tel Aviv is now today. And what sits between that mountain range and that coastal plain, um, you can see a little bit better here, is this area that is got that little star in the middle, and that's where we're going to live today, is the Valley of Elah. But the red circle shows you where Jerusalem is. The blue box is Bethlehem, to give you just a little bit of places to orient our day. But this area is the Shephelah, or the Judean foothills. And it's beautiful country. And this series of valleys or ridges that run east to west, and if you follow the Shephelah, you get from the coastal plain to the mountains. Remember, that's where those cities are. And if you wanted to get to those mountains from the coast, from that coastal plain, if you lived there, like the people called the Philistines did, you would have to journey through the Shephelah. It was the best way to get there, and that was the only way if you wanted to threaten the people who lived in those cities, in those mountains. That was the way that you took. So kind of looking at this from the big picture. Now the Philistines were the biggest enemies of the kingdom of Israel at this time, about 3,000 some years ago. 
and they live on that coastal plain, as I said. And they start to make their way through the coastal plain into the Shephelah, into those foothills of the mountains. Because what they want to do is to occupy that area. And then they want to go and split the kingdom of Israel in half. They want to divide and conquer. And obviously, the king of Israel at that time, King Saul, he learns about this. And he brings his army down from the mountains. And he confronts the Philistines in the Valley of Eva. Again, that is that star position on our map today. And so he confronts them there. And this is a picture of what that region looks like today. But it is interesting to think about this 3,000 years ago and how these two armies were faced off against each other. See, the Israelites dig in along the northern ridge, and the Philistines set up camp on the southern ridge. And these two armies just sit down and stare at each other for weeks. Because you got to come down the mountain into the valley to get to the other side. And when you do that, you are completely exposed to the army that's still sitting on the other ridge. So they're in this deadlock together, and they want to break it because ain't nobody got time to just sit around looking at each other. And so the Philistines, they send their mightiest warrior down into that valley, and he calls out to them, and he says to the Israelites, send out your best warrior. Send out your best warrior, and we will have this out, just the two of us. doesn't have to cost all these lives here. It's just you and me. And he is an impressive warrior. He is tall. I mean, I'm not just talking tall. I'm talking tall. Estimates, you know, taking measurements from ancient literature, you've got to always got to work with a little bit to kind of bring it into our terms. But the estimates are that this man was between 6'9", or possibly even up to 9 feet tall. I don't know that it matters so much. I just know that 6'9 is pretty tall. My husband's 6'3", and I still got to look up at him. So this guy is big. And it's not just that he is a big dude. He has weapons. He has this amazing armor that shines. And no doubt, when the light hits it, it's hard to see where he's coming from. That that reflection, no doubt, has an impact on you as the warrior facing off against him. And this is not the only thing that he has at his disposal. He also has a sword, a javelin, and a spear. He's loaded for bear. He is ready for war. And he is absolutely terrifying. And no one, no one from the Israelite army makes a move towards him. They sit on that ridge knowing that to go face off against this giant is a death wish. There is no way they think they can take him. And what fascinates me is that as we read that this Philistine, this giant who stands head and shoulders above everyone, is the very fact that we know that King Saul 
the king of Israel, as a man known for being head and shoulders above everyone else. But Saul doesn't step up to the challenge. He sits back with the rest of the Israelites, cowering up on that ridge. No one will take up the challenge until one young shepherd, really so much a boy, steps forward and he is delivering groceries to his brothers who are soldiers on the front line. And he is doing this at his father's insistence. Dad wants to know how he's doing, so he's like, send them some food, then they'll talk to you. It's the way of life. And so when this shepherd boy gets to the army and he sees this giant down there taunting the armies of Israel, he goes up to Saul and he says, I will fight him. If no one else will fight him, I will fight him. I will fight the giant. And Saul says, that's ridiculous. You can't do this. This dude is a mighty warrior. You're a kid. But this shepherd boy is insistent. No one else is coming forward. So Saul gives in. And he turns to the kid and he says, if you're going to do this, I'm going to make sure you have the right stuff. I'm going to equip you to do this. And so Saul has his armor put on this shepherd boy. Now remember, Saul's a big dude. He stands head and shoulders above other people. I don't think the armor's going to fit, and it doesn't. And so he tries to give this to this shepherd boy, and he says, no, I can't wear this. I haven't worn it before. It's just going to be a problem for me trying to navigate some new piece of equipment while I'm trying to, like, fight for my life and the life of my nation. I've never worn armor before. Let's just put this aside. And so this shepherd boy, he puts the armor aside and instead goes and picks up five stones and he puts them in his shepherd's bag. And he starts to walk down the mountainside to meet this giant. And the giant sees the shepherd boy approaching and calls out to him, Come to me so I can feed your flesh to the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the field. That sounds great. <laughs> and he issues this taunt to this person who's coming down to fight him. And as the shepherd boy draws closer and closer, the giant sees, one, his size, but also that he is just carrying a staff. And the giant says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the shepherd boy simply stakes out one of the stones, puts it in his sling. This is not a slingshot. This is a sling, a pouch with two long um, strands. He takes it out, and he starts to swing it and lets it fly. And he hits the giant right between his eyes, this very vulnerable spot. And the giant falls down dead, We're not sh or dead, or possibly unconscious. It's not going to matter, because the next thing that happens is the shepherd boy runs over, takes the giant's sword, cuts his head off. 
The Philistines see this, and they hit the road. <laughs> They're gone. You took out Goliath with a stone. We want nothing to do with this. And as you probably figured out, the name of the giant is Goliath, and the shepherd boy is David. And this thing about David's story is that he is depicted as an underdog. He is somebody who has persevered against odds that seem very improbable, that he is a weaker person going up against a stronger person. It is a metaphor for us for victories that do not seem possible at the time. So why do we call David an underdog? You know, we've kind of touched on some of these things. He's a little kid in many ways compared to Goliath. And again, I talked a little bit about his, his height. And these are just some, some images to give you an understanding. Um, the one to the far left is what they estimate David might have been as, as a young man, about 5'2", maybe. It's estimated, again. We don't have actual, you know, that little thing on the wall that you do with your own kids. And the one in blue is um, Shaquille O'Neal, by comparison, who is seven foot one, seven foot one. And then the very far right one is um, the greatest estimate for Goliath of being nine foot tall. And so in between there is the world's largest or tallest man by medical history who was about eight foot 11. So kind of thinking about these dimensions, no doubt, if you put the one on the left against the one on the right, yeah, I, I wouldn't bet on the guy on the left. I wouldn't bet on David. But even if you go with the shorter estimate for Goliath, which is where that star lands, you know, about 6'9", six, 6'6", six, six, he's still pretty tall. He still has a size advantage over David. So this is kind of why we depict David as the underdog, as this guy coming up who clearly, you know, you wouldn't bet on. Now, you not only have this height difference, but you also have the fact that Goliath is experienced. He is a warrior, and he is equipped. He has the armor. He has the sword. He has the, the spear. He has the javelin. He is ready. He's got it. He's got the tools to do the job. And all David has is this sling. Who would you bet on with this information? The thing is, we look at the sling and we think he doesn't have a chance. This is because we don't understand the power of a sling. It's a lack of understanding about ancient warfare. Because in ancient warfare, there were about three kinds of warriors. There was your cavalry, who were on horseback or in chariots. There's the heavy infantry, which are foot soldiers, armed with swords, shields, and some kind of armor. And then there's the artillery. And yes, they had archers. But more importantly, they had slingers. The slinger is someone who carries this leather pouch with two long cords attached. And they put a rock or a lead ball inside the pouch, and then they whirl it around. And in that whirling, they pick up speed and force. 
And it's important to understand, again, this is a sling, not a sling shot. And as they would let go of the cords, the effect is to send that projectile towards a target. And it's not right to think about this as a child's toy because it's in fact very devastating because of the speed at which this projectile would be coming at your target. As he's turning this thing around, it's estimated that it was probably spinning at seven to, six to seven revolutions per second. Six to seven revolutions per second, that is fast. And when it is released, it's going forward probably about 35 meters per second. And it's substantially faster. Let's put it in terms maybe we understand. It's substantially faster than many of our baseball pitchers today. And I don't know about you, but I do not want to be on the receiving end of a baseball thrown by a major league pitcher, let alone one of these stones thrown by David. So if you do kind of the math on the ballistics, the stopping power of that rock that David flung out, it's roughly equal to the stopping power of a 45-millimeter handgun. You want to change your bet now? This is an incredibly devastating weapon. And add in the accuracy of an experienced slinger. We know that from historical records, slingers could hit or even kill a target at a distance of up to 200 yards. They were incredibly accurate. And David is not 200 yards away from Goliath. He is much closer. When he lines up and he fires that stone, he has every intention and expectation that he will be able to hit Goliath where he aims. He hits him right in that vulnerable spot between his eyes. And even if he didn't kill him, he definitely knocked him out. And I think cutting it off his head took care of the rest. See, in the history of ancient warfare, we find it in and again that slingers were often the decisive factor against infantry. And that's what Goliath was. He was heavy infantry. He had the armor, he had the sword, he has the, the spear and the javelin. He is ready for close combat. And that is what Goliath expects to happen. He says, come to me that I may feed you to the birds and the beasts. Come to me. Come closer, my pretty. He's going to fight him hand to hand. That's what he thinks is going to happen. Saul has the same expectation. That's why he tries to give you know, David his armor, tries to give him the tool he thinks he needs for this task, when David has a completely different task in mind. See, David has no expectation of fighting this man hand to hand. Why would he? He's a shepherd. He's not an infantryman. He spent his entire career, so to speak, up to this point, using a sling to defend his flock against lions and bears. David's not incompetent. He just has a different skill set than what we expect out of a warrior. See, 
in his fight to protect his father's flocks. He has learned where his strength lies. This is his experience he brings to the battlefield in a very devastating weapon against this lumbering giant who is weighed down by probably about 100 pounds of armor and these incredibly heavy weapons that are only really useful in short-range combat. Goliath is a sitting duck. So I ask you again, do you want to change your bet on the outcome of this battle? But it's easy to judge on appearance. But remember last week, we talked about that God does not look at appearance like we do. He looks at the heart of a person. God knows David's heart. And important for this story as well is David knows his own heart. He knows his own skill set. We keep calling David an underdog, but I think there's this important lesson for all of us. Giants are not always as strong and powerful as they seem. Giants are not always as strong and powerful as they seem. And sometimes the shepherd boy has a sling in his pocket. And more importantly, confidence in himself and his God. He knows who he is and whose he is, as opposed to what everyone else sees when they look at David. David could have put on the armor because that's what they expected of him. He could have picked up a sword because that's what they tried to hand him. But he doesn't. He knows himself and he knows his God. And he knows he is a shepherd who has defended his flock from fierce predators. Not with armor, not with swords, not with spears, but with his sling. This is who he is, and he embraces it. So often we try to be something that we are not, when in fact who we are is quite powerful. He knows who he is, and he knows who he is. Those battles defending the sheep have demonstrated to him that the outcome of fight can be decided not by how big you are, but by how clever and or how brave you are. How much of a fight do you have in this? How determined are you in this? David knows that he might not have escaped from the lion or the bear unless God also was with him. He knows his own skill set, but he also knows God in this. And when he puts those together, he understands that he has great opportunity. That when these two considerations interweave, he knows what they can do. No courage and shrewdness, he may die. No involvement of God, he dies. He's needed both, and he will need both again. And he leans into that. He relies on that, trusting that God has brought him this far. And he will continue to trust that God will be with him in the present and into the future. It is because of, and not despite, David's size and his unorthodox choice of weapon 
that he is able to slay the giant. God has prepared David. And we talked about last week that David was anointed. He is going to be the next king. God has chosen David for this destiny. But after his anointing, there's really nothing because David just goes back to those fields, goes back to the smelly sheep, the hot sun, the cold nights, the loneliness. Mm. Or it is in those fields that God is preparing David for the work that will happen in that valley against that giant. We look sometimes at that time as wasted. Like, I had this big moment. They doused me in oil. They said I was going to be the next king. And then they send me back to work. They send me back to my old job. Or is it in the waiting that we are prepared? That is sometimes how we have to look at our stories. Not that time is wasted, but that in the waiting we are being prepared for something. God prepared David in those fields for the work of this field of battle where Goliath taunts Israel's army. David's story invites us to look differently at ourselves, not as others see us, not at the outward appearance, but to look at our heart, to look at our stories and go, what will God do with this? What will God make of this? What will God make of me? David's story invites us to know ourselves as well as to know the God who calls us into existence, who then calls us into relationship with himself through Jesus Christ, and then calls us into the work of his reign, his kingdom. So I want us today to think about not only David's story and how God interacts with David in this story, but also our own stories and how God has interacted with us. Who are we? Who are we? Our past, no, does not define us. Our past does not define us. God defines us. God looks at us and says, you are my precious child. You are my beloved. But our past does shape us. It gives us experiences that sometimes give us courage and strength for the next season, and sometimes they give us empathy and compassion for ourselves and others. Sometimes our experiences teach us to love ourselves and love others, if we will allow them to do that. So who are we? Who, who are we in this life? What are our gifts? What are our experiences? What are our skills? Look at all of them. Not, not what have we missed out on, not what don't we have. Stop looking at the absence and look at what is present. Stop looking at the expectations of others and adopting them for your own. But who are you? Because when we know ourselves and our God, we can not only face the giant, we not only have the ability to face the giant, 
but to defeat them. There is this passage from Genesis where a man who has been sold into slavery by his brothers, think about that depth of betrayal, and goes through this so many series of hardships to come out on the other side and then be in a position to save those same brothers who sold him. I don't know that I would have the capacity for compassion, but these are his words. What you intended for harm, God has intended for good. This man Joseph is now in the position to save the very family that discarded him. We are not defined by our past, but we can be shaped by them, shaped by those experiences for the work that will come, for the life that comes before us. Because when we know ourselves and we know our God, we not only have the ability to face the giants, but to defeat them. So I want us to take some time this week to continue to look at our own stories, our own life experiences, the events that have shaped you, that have brought you to this point. Ask God to help reveal to you what maybe you've forgotten or overlooked, or to maybe give a new perspective to the events of your life, to see maybe what you understood as harm to now understand can be used for good. So that when we have this perspective, when we have this understanding of who we are and who God is, that when we are engaged in the everyday, maybe engaged in the very ordinary task of carrying groceries, that we can see the extraordinary work and life that God is calling us into. Amen. Amen.